2: You know why the angels are all gathered around the throne worshiping God, don't you? It's because they want to. (laughs) There is no schedule that says, y'all show up and worship God at this time. They are compelled to do so. Everything in their being cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They don't take it as a chore. They don't take it as a burden. It is something that their very being compels them to do. They are acting in the fullness of who they are. Now here's the thing. The enemy wants to convince you. He wants to take your joy. He wants to convince you that everything that God tells you to do is somehow a burden. That the things of God are something you have to trudge through, that you're forced to do. That they're not in your will. And the reality of it is, that is a lie. You may not feel like in your emotions, like you want to worship him. You may not feel in your emotions like it's your life, your joy to be about him, to be obedient, to follow him. But it's how you're made and all that God is trying to show us through his word is not our obligation to him, but the blessing of his presence in our lives, the delight of knowing him. The commands are nothing more than saying to you, you know, if you step out here, you're going to see a side of me you haven't seen before. You're going to be blessed beyond your ability to comprehend. You're going to start living in a new way. If you'll just begin by taking that first step into truth. If you'll take that first step into obedience. And we fight him tooth and toenail because the flesh says, and the enemy says, and the world says, well, that's just not what we like to do. That's just not normal. Well, that is a lie. It's absolutely normal for you. It's as normal as breathing, more normal than breathing, actually, because you're going to carry it well beyond this body. It's time For us to wake up and know that the delight of every day, the joy of every moment, the thing that makes our soul sing is our worship of him, our recognition of him dwelling in his presence. Then sings my soul. You know, the soul is a contrary thing because it gets so much contrariness from the world and the flesh. But you see... In that song, he talks about considering God, focusing upon God, looking at his creation. And as he began to consider who God is and all that God has done and the wonders of his God, his soul began to sing. His soul responded to his faith in truth, to his word, to his his pondering of truth. Today we're going to uh, continue our study in the book of James, we'll be in chapter 2, we're going to finish out chapter 2, we're going to look at one of the most controversial passages, but it won't be for us, okay? In fact, this section of scripture has been a real struggle for a lot of people, James in itself has been a real struggle for a lot of people, and it doesn't need to be, it really doesn't need to be. We're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And in fact, men's perceptions and interpretations of this passage have caused them to totally disregard the book of James as being uninspired or too vexing to even study. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 is the main reason Martin Luther, although not questioning the canonicity of it, referred to this epistle as a right-strawy epistle. And the inference there is towards Paul's description of works, wood, hay, and stubble in 1 Corinthians. And because of this, Martin Luther, that great theologian, relegated James to the appendix of his Bible. See, Luther questioned the usefulness of James Because it had so little about justification by faith. But instead seemed to emphasize works over faith. As it was more concerned with the practical aspects of Christian conduct. So, as we look at this, I want you to understand something. It's almost a chicken and egg argument when it comes to works and faith. People tend to argue, as James articulates in there, yeah, show me your works and I'll show you faith. Well, the reality is that works is the fruit of faith. Works is the fruit of faith. All right. Now, many preachers have used these passages as a proof text to back a work-based doctrine. But that is a distortion of the spirit of God's emphasis and meaning, as proof texting often is. There are a couple of things we must keep in mind when we look at this. First, James is not at odds with Paul's message concerning justification by faith. He's not speaking against Paul's description of justification by faith. In fact, Many believe that the epistle of James is a much earlier work than, than the epistles of Paul. And we must also remember that Scripture is authored by the Spirit of God, and therefore it is never contradictory, never contradictory. If you see a contradiction, it's because you are not understanding it correctly. So you go back to the Father and you say, Lord, explain this to me, teach me. You know, a lot of people don't do that. When you open the Word of God, you need to say, I'm here to learn from you. When you do that, you avail yourself to the Spirit's wisdom concerning these things. It might not come to you right in that moment, but it certainly will come. That's how we grow in the Word of God. So, we must always remember that Scripture is authored by the Spirit of God. So therefore, you won't find any contradictions there. And if we think that, then we're wrongly interpreted. Second, the audience for this letter are the converted Jews of the dispersion who have been persecuted. And the persecution of their religious leaders and of their own people had literally dispersed them throughout the empire. That's why they call them the Jews of the dispersion. And consequently, they were scattered all over the place. So this this letter was not written to one little gathering of people. It was literally written to all the Jews of the dispersion. And what we will continually see throughout this letter is an emphasis on faith. Okay? Now, this particular text we're looking at mentions faith some 15 times, depending upon what translation you're you're looking at. Works, it's mentioned 12 times in this little short section of Scripture. In our text today, the Holy Spirit is dealing with the relationship of faith to works. Now, last time we looked at James, he was dealing with the delusion of hearing and not doing. And he was challenging the readers with chapter 1, verse 22, where it says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, actively and continually obeying God's precepts, and not merely listeners who hear the word but fail to internalize its meaning, deluding yourself by unsound reasoning contrary to the truth. Now look. I brought this out last time, but if you are just listening to the Word, but you're not entering into the obedience of the Word, you are deluding yourself. In other words, you're acting contrary to reason, contrary to wisdom. You are not walking in the truth that God has given you. Now, why would God give you truth? Why would He command you to walk in the truth? Because that's what suits you. That's the way he made you. That is where we find our purpose in being. That's where we find our significance, is in walking in the truth. Now, the Spirit is seeking to bring clarity and to answer the question, what is genuine saving faith? That's an expression you'll hear. What is genuine saving faith? More specifically, what does it look like? Now, James insists that a living faith will prove itself by producing works. There is no antagonism between faith and works. They are not totally distinct concepts, but rather two inseparable elements in salvation. James insists that works are not an added extra to faith, but they're an essential expression of faith. So our desire tonight is to allow the Spirit of God to give us a clear picture of the relationship between faith and works. Our text today is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Please stand with me as I read the Word of God here together. Beginning with verse 14. What is the benefit, my fellow believers, if someone claims to have faith That has no good works as evidence. Can that kind of faith save him? No. A mere claim of faith is not sufficient. Genuine faith produces good works. If a brother or sister is without adequate clothing and lacks enough food for each day, and one of you says to them, Go in peace with my blessing. Keep warm and feed yourselves but he does not give them the necessities for the body, what good does that do? So too, faith, if it does not have works to back it up, is by itself dead, inoperative, and ineffective. But someone may say, you claim to have faith, and I have good works. Show me your alleged faith without the works if you can, and I will show you my faith by my works, that is by what I do. You believe that God is one, you do well to believe that. The demons also believe that and shudder and bristle, in all filled terror. They have seen his wrath. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish, spiritually shallow person, that faith without good works is useless? Was our father Abraham not shown to be justified by works of obedience which expressed his faith when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar as a sacrifice to God? You see that his faith was working together with his works, and as a result, the works, his faith, was completed, reaching its maturity when he expressed his faith through obedience. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and this faith was credited to him by God as righteousness and as conformity to his will. And he was called the friend of God. You see, that a man, believer, is justified by works and not by faith alone. That is, by acts of obedience, a born-again believer reveals his faith. In the same way, Rahab, the prostitute, not justified by works too, when she received... The Hebrew spies as guests and protected them and sent them away to escape by a different route. For just as the human body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works of obedience is dead also. Praise God for his word. You may be seated. So let's look at verse 14 to begin with, and he writes, what is the benefit, my fellow believers, if someone claims to have faith but has no good works as evidence? Can that kind of faith save him? No, a mere claim of faith is not sufficient. Genuine faith produces good works. So James asks this rhetorical question, and the tense of that question supposes a negative answer. Well, the Amplified goes ahead and and answers it accordingly. What we see illustrated here is not true faith, okay? It is not true true faith it is a claim to faith the tense of this verse indicates that this fellow's life has not demonstrated the work of faith the secular mind has its own approach to faith that the flesh is more than able to fulfill and we see that a lot in religion right it is typically seen in a religious devotion it is put forth by the will of man and fulfilled in the strength of man if at all This individual claims to have faith, but there is no attempt to demonstrate it through living or works. Now, understand something. You can equate works to living because of the new covenant. Works are not an isolated action. They can be a specific act of obedience, but they are not an isolated action. It is referencing your life. A life of obedience is a life filled with the works of God because apart from God, obedience is impossible, right? So, to claim to believe without sincere spirit given faith is worthless and will not save anyone. The lack of works is simply an evidence that he lacks in f- sincere faith. Billy Graham said, faith that saves has one distinguishing quality. Saving faith is a faith that produces obedience. It is a faith that brings about a way of life. Now, James insists that saving faith is living faith. Now, this goes to what I was just saying to you. Now, remember what I've been telling you. There are two ways to live. You can live according to the flesh or by the spirit. You cannot live according to the flesh and be obedient. You cannot live according to the flesh and live by faith. In order to live by faith, you must walk according to the Spirit. And all that God has commanded you to do, all that God has put before you in the path that you're on, is met with obedience. And we grow in our knowledge of Him. We grow in our relationship with Him through this obedience. Therefore, the, the obedience is a blessing. It matures us. It grows us. It expands us in our capacity to know God. I know there's been many a time I've sat at the Thanksgiving table wishing I had expanded the capacity of my stomach. Why? Because there was so much there to enjoy. But I could only eat so much. I would love to be able to polish off that pie. But there was no more room in the inn. God is expanding your capacity to know him. And he does that through an active obedience, a living obedience. So when we talk about works, don't get it in your head that that's a specific assignment by God. Know that it's you living out the truth, okay? And you can only do that by faith. James insists that a saving faith is a living faith, evidencing its genuineness by its expression. Faith will always have an expression. I'll illustrate that again in a minute. But it is wrong to assume that James's purpose is simply to stress the importance of good work. James is not advocating works apart from faith. But he is saying that a living faith should demonstrate its character by its deeds. This is what it means to walk by faith or to live this life by faith. And that that is repeated in Romans chapter 1 verse 7, Galatians chapter 3 verse 11, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 38. You live this life by faith. What life? The life that he's given you. It's not talking about your earthly existence. It's talking about living out the spiritual life that he has given you. The same life that he's given you when he says, I've come that you might have, what? Life. That's not a simple one-time experience. That is every day you take in breath, you are here for the purpose of knowing life. You have eternal life. Verses 15 through 17, if a brother or sister is without adequate clothing and lacks enough food for each day, and one of you says to them, go in peace with my blessing, keep warm and feed yourselves, but he does not give them the necessities for the body, what good does that do? So too, faith, if it does not have works to back it up, is by itself dead, inoperative, ineffective. Now, James is giving an example of a mortal faith versus a supernatural faith, okay? First, notice that this is a fellow believer in need, which is, as I have pointed out many times, is the priority of any benevolence for the church body. The giving in the New Testament was always directed towards the poor or the destitute believer. If we had to paraphrase this verse in the original language... It would read, if a brother or sister, having been in destitute condition, be found by you in that condition. That's what he's saying. Now, this describes a fellow believer before you. You've encountered them in rags and plainly suffering from malnutrition. His condition is plain to you. This is not something you're having to figure out. This is not something that the Spirit has to give you. It is literally plain to your sight that this is a brother or sister in a destitute condition. They're in need. Now, this describes a fellow believer who's standing before you. And this is not a matter of discerning the need. It's plain before you. And now, this is something else I thought was interesting. You notice nowhere in that, in that little story he's telling, an example he's given, do you see them asking for anything? That's not in there. They're not asking for anything. This describes this person that's just, these are people standing before you. So the response that is given by these these people to being confronted by their condition is not to a request, but it is to what they're seeing with their eyes. Then in verse 16, these people that say they have faith respond specifically addressing the need with a series of commands. as actually a command which literally dismiss the believer who is in obvious need. If you look at that verse, he says, go in peace with my blessing. They need the blessing. Keep warm. They see they don't have enough clothing. It's not pointed out to them. They see that. Keep warm. Feed yourselves. They see they need food. You see that? He doesn't have to have that pointed out to him, but does not give them anything. And he says, go on, feed yourself, clothe yourself. So the question is asked, what good is that kind of faith? Well, that's human faith. That's that is man's faith. That's a faith that that allows him to dismiss the needs of others. Remember, this is not about charity, It's about faith being demonstrated through charity. If faith is not demonstrated when God presents a need, then what good is your faith is the question. Now, this illustration was extremely relevant to the Jews because remember that they'd been suffering under persecution. They'd been driven out of their homes. That a lot of them did not have the basic necessities of life. They were constantly on the run and they most likely had somebody in their presence at the tabernacle on a weekly or even daily basis that was in this condition. So they walked past them or walked by them or maybe, you know, those who are of genuine faith would have said, what can we do to help you? We're suffering too, but we'll be happy to give you what we have. We'll be happy to help you. So in this case, this is... The evidence of true faith would have been compassion and charity. Not the works alone, but the faith that allows the character of Christ to be expressed. The will of God is done by and through faith. The illustration here is that true faith would have motivated the believer to respond as Christ would have. When the word works is used, we often think of our doing. But the life we live as believers in the body, we live by faith. Remember Galatians 2.20? We live in the same way that Jesus lived, by faith, trusting by faith in his life that will express itself through us. Now, I know that Jesus didn't walk around every time he encountered somebody that either needed healing or needed provision or whatever. He didn't say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do with this one? No. When he walked about, he was constantly being guided by the life within him, his communion with the Father.
1: Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship.